John chapter 20, and we will look at these verses 11 through 18. We are in the Easter season. It's just uh, two weeks ago that the church around the world, at least most of the church, the Greeks uh, do it a bit differently, but most of the church celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. The Greeks just do it at a different time, but they still celebrate it. The astounding reality, the astounding fact that on the third day after dying, Jesus of Nazareth was alive never to die again. Uh, and we are in the Easter season, and I suggested last week that we want to we camp here for a while. And reflect upon these things. So join me at verse 11 of John chapter 20. And we'll read together one of the most tender and hopeful passages anywhere in scripture. John 20 verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, grant us now your spirit, having given us your word, uh, and by your word and your spirit, in ways we do not, cannot measure, quantify, weigh, by your word and your spirit, come and minister deeply to the souls, to the hearts, to the lives of your people. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. As you look at this passage, John chapter 20, I want you to, I want you to notice. Uh, just notice it's, it's easy to read these passages. We, we get familiar with these passages and read them every year. Maybe read them in the course of the year. We can, we can miss things. Uh, We can overlook things. I just want you to notice the convergence of things in in this passage. Uh, I want you to notice Mary's tears. 
I want you to notice the repeated emphasis upon her tears in verses 11 and 12. Those tears are what? They're tears of grief, right? That's the second thing. Just notice the grief that is here. Why is there grief here? Because someone whom she loved has died. Not only someone whom she loved, but someone who had had a profound and powerful effect and impact and influence in her life. Someone she cherished deeply has died. And notice that she comes to do what people who have lost loved ones do. She comes to the grave. She comes, she comes to, in her case, anoint the body. She brings, she brings spices. She brings anointings to do something. We, we have to do things, don't we? We're, we're as, as the women who were here yesterday, some nearly 60 women who were here yesterday for the women's lunch and heard, we, we're not just spirits, we are embodied spirits. We have bodies and will always have bodies except for that intermediate period of time between death and the final resurrection when body and soul get put back together, glorified, fully transformed to live forever. We have bodies and we will have bodies and we have to do things with our bodies. And Mary had to come to the grave. She couldn't just sit in her room in her den She couldn't just think. She had to come and do something. You see this convergence of all of these things? Tears, grief, loss, wanting to do something. It's pretty poignant, isn't it? It's pretty important, it seems to me, that we camp on these things and and reflect upon these things. And and I'm going to suggest some things for us to reflect upon in addition to the things I've just mentioned Some things for us to reflect upon yet again, and I I hope they will be an encouragement to you. Just a few things. The first thing is this. All of this really happened. All of this really happened. Not only Mary's tears and Mary's grief and Mary's sense of loss and, and Mary having to come to the grave to do something, but the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. The grave clothes were lying there on that piece of stone. And the body was gone. It really happened. Charles Colson died yesterday. Two weeks ago in my Easter sermon, I referred to Charles Colson and how Charles Colson made the point after he became a Christian, he became a Christian. This is the man who said he would walk over his grandmother as the head of creep, the committee to reelect the president said he would walk over his grandmother to get Richard Nixon elected to a second term. The man may have thought that he was a Christian when he was involved with creep. But, I mean, isn't life filled with marvelous ironies? Striking ironies. The man was an Episcopalian. The man probably went to church every week. The man may have thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't a Christian. But after he became a Christian and came to understand personally that Jesus was alive from the dead, reflected upon the post-Watergate investigations and interrogations, 
and made the observation in his book Life Sentence that when the heat was on, when the pressure came, when the interrogations came, all of those guys who had been allies in their efforts to have Richard Nixon reelected, they all turned on one another and fabricated stories or maybe told the true story to get the investigators turned away from them and turned on the others and to a man, to a person. After the resurrection, the apostles maintained one consistent story. He is not dead. He is alive. It happened. John Updike got it. Remember the poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter? If you've not read the poem, that's the title. You can Google it. It'll pop up free of charge. You can read it. John Updike, Seven Stanzas at Easter. If Christ is not raised, the church falls. It all happened. It happened. Christians across 20 centuries gathered on Easter, have gathered on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, to celebrate the fact of the resurrection. We know that. But did you ever reflect upon this? Reflect upon this. It's worth thinking about. The death of Jesus occurred, according to the Jewish calendar, the death of Jesus occurred on the 6th day, on Friday. That is when Jesus died. If you think about the 6th day and Jesus dying on the 6th day, you'll see one little dot that can be connected to yet another dot. The days of redemption are connected to the days of creation. God completed His work on the 6th day and on the 7th day entered into His rest, the Sabbath. Jesus finished His work on the sixth day. He died, John 19.30. It is finished and then entered into His rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, buried in the tomb, but present with the Father. He had said to the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you will be with Me in paradise. His body was in the grave, resting in the grave, not succumbing to decay. His spirit, His soul, with the thief on the cross, whose body was also laid in a grave in the presence of the Father. Resting on the seventh Day, But we don't worship on the seventh day, do we? When did Mary come to the grave? On the first day of the week. She couldn't come to the grave on the seventh day of the week because it was the Sabbath. And you stay home on the Sabbath. She came to the grave on the first day of the week. And her recognition of the tomb being empty and then Jesus subsequently reassuring him, reassuring her, producing for her evidence and truth that he was in fact alive, shifted for all time the day upon which the people of God would worship. They worship on the first day of the week, resurrection day. From the seventh day to the eighth day, Jesus exploded the bonds of death. Exploded bondage of sin. Exploded the grave. 
and remains alive forever. The whole world. Do you, do you ever think about these things? Look, I, I, I just I want to acknowledge. I want to acknowledge that we all struggle sometimes to believe that these things really could be true. My wife and I talk about this sometimes sitting on the beach, looking at the beauty of the creation here in Vero Beach, Florida. Sometimes Barb will say to me, does it ever, does it ever seem to you that this is, that this is incomprehensible? That it might not be true? And I'll say to her, yeah, yeah, too good to be true, too unbelievable to be true. And yet, for 20 centuries, the church, like the first 12, has maintained a consistent story. The true church of Jesus Christ has said, no, alive on the first day of the week, and the whole of the world, by its calendar, not just in the United States, but in Europe and around the world, make allowance in their calendar for the first day of the week. Rather stunning, isn't it? It really happened. But I want you to notice something. Someone has said, and I don't remember who, someone has said facts are stubborn things. But I want you to notice something. Verse 11 tells us that Mary, standing outside the tomb, looked into the tomb. That was a stubborn fact for her. The body was gone. The grave cloths undisturbed collapsed in place. The head cloth still wrapped and reflecting the tortured and agonized profile of the one who had loved her the way no one else had ever loved her. Still there, but the body was gone. Here's the thing I want you to notice. While facts may be stubborn things, the fact did not wipe away her tears. The fact didn't heal her wounded heart. The fact didn't assuage her grief. She needed something more, didn't she? How about angels? Let's have a dose of angels. Angels? You know, I I live in this world, not as much as I would like to, not as faithfully as I should and all of that, but... I live in this world, the world of the Bible. I wrestle with it each week. I try to make sense of it every week. I try to come come each Sunday morning 
having tried to make sense of this world that the Bible is and that is the true and real world, and I try to come on Sunday mornings having wrestled with it, trying to make sense of it for you. And sometimes I forget that there are things in here that people look at and consider or hear and wonder about, like angels. had a conversation just this last week, two weeks ago actually, with one of our members who'd never really thought about angels. Didn't know that angels were personal beings, that angels, while different from us, have some sort of corporeal existence, some sort of material existence, very different from our own, very clearly, but some sort of physical and material existence, functioning in varieties of ways across the scriptures. You can read Isaiah 6 and you can see a particular kind of angel surrounding the throne, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. You can see that song repeated in Revelation 4 and 5, the angels that are around the throne in Isaiah 6. We get details about their appearance that we don't get in Isaiah 6. We get them in Revelation 4. That's a particular kind of angel. There are cherubim, cherubim that are seated above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, these cherubic things, you know, these fat little childlike looking things, at least that's the image that we have of them from medieval art with wings and that sort of thing, cherubim, seraphim, cherubim, there are other kinds of angels that are, there are angels that wield swords like the angel that met Joshua before he crossed the Jordan to go into the land, to conquer the land. Uh, an angel with a sword in his hand, brandishing that sword. Joshua saying to that angel, this is in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua saying to that angel, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel in effect saying in response to Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't am I for or against you. The question is are you for or against me because I am the angel of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's host? Whose side are you on, Joshua? That's the question. You have angels that make announcements like the angel that spoke that night when the shepherds were taking care of their sheep and then was surrounded by multitudes of angels announcing, heralding the birth of Christ, Gabriel who came to Mary to announce that she would conceive and then would give birth to a son. Angels announce things. That's what these two angels do here. They make an announcement. Angelic beings. How about a dose of angels? We've said, haven't we recently, these last months across this last year as we've looked at Romans and we've tried to understand Paul's argument in Romans, trying to understand that a person who is a Christian is someone who has been invaded by the work of the Holy Spirit, someone who has been raised from death to life and united to Jesus Christ, that the invisible God has reached across the veil that separates the seen and the unseen and has reached into the depths of one who has been born in sin, conceived in 
sin, held in bondage to sin, and has been drawn up from death and bondage in sin to be united to Jesus Christ, unseen but truly alive by the miraculous, invisible agency of the Holy Spirit. And we've said we live in a reality that consists of two aspects. Two aspects. The seen and the unseen. And the two aspects of this one reality are separated by this very, very thin veil. And our eyes see the one reality, the seats upon which we are sitting, the shoulder of the person against whom we are leaning. We take into our bodies the food that sustains us, all very physical, all very material, but it is only one aspect of the totality of what is really real. There is an unseen dimension to things. And these angels in this passage have stepped across that veil. They've crossed over from one side to the other side in order to make an announcement to Mary, in order to herald for her the fact that Christ is risen. There are angelic activities all across the Old Testament. I'm reading Abraham's life. He's being met Time and time again, not every day, not every month, not even every year, but several times he's met by angelic beings. My favorite story of angels is Second Kings 6. It ought to be a profound encouragement to you. It's Elisha standing on the walls of the city of Dothan in southeast Alabama. No. No, the Dothan that is in Israel, standing on the walls of Dothan with his servants surrounded by the army of Syria. And the servant is terrified and he says to Elisha, Alas, master, what shall we do? This is in the margin. It's not in the original text, but a scribe wrote it in the margin. Elisha, we are toast. And Elisha does one thing. He says simply, oh Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And the eyes of the the servant are opened. And in the mountains surrounding the plain before the city of Dothan, The mountains are filled with chariots of fire, angelic beings, the armies of the host of the Lord going to battle in behalf of the people of God. Hebrews 1.14 In trying to turn the attention of people who are very enamored of angels who are inclined and disposed to worship angels. The writer of the letter of the Hebrews in seeking to set Jesus before the eyes of these people who are inclined to worship angels, setting Him before them as supremely glorious and alone worthy of their worship, says in verse 14, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those 
who are to inherit salvation. You know you have unseen allies. Not just Jesus, who is your great ally at the right hand of the Father. You have unseen allies, ministering spirits just on the other side of the veil, who are sent out for this explicit purpose. To serve those who are to inherit salvation. That's why these two angels appear at the tomb. They come to serve Mary. They come to serve her in the midst of her tears, her grief, her broken heart, her loss. And speak to her words of profound comfort and encouragement. Now I know that the idea of angels, angelic beings just on the other side of the veil created, commissioned, sent by God to serve His church, to serve those who are to inherit salvation. I I know the notion of another dimension to reality is met with everything from doubt to cynicism. It's hard to believe this stuff, isn't it? In a world so influenced and affected, And it's just true, folks. I'm not trying to impress you with anything here. It's just true that we are a world so affected by post-enlightenment rationalism, by enlightenment empiricism, so influenced by that, that if it doesn't make sense to us on the one hand, that's rationalism. And if we can't measure it or quantify it on the other hand, that's empiricism. It isn't really real. That's not the world of the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, again, on Easter Sunday, I referred to this video clip that I received. It features a man named Alexander Tsiaris. My guess is that if you Google his name, Alexander's easy enough. Tsiaris is T S. I-A-R-I-S. If you Google it, you can find it. If you want it, I'll send it to you. It's a little video clip entitled Conception to Birth. And in it, Alexander Tsiaris talks in his first little bit of commentary about collagen and how collagen exists throughout the body. It's in our nails. It's in our hair. It's in our skin. It's everywhere. And everywhere, it is a rope-like structure woven together except one place, and that is the cornea of the eye where it becomes grid-like and transparent. Doggone. Ain't we lucky? Ain't it a lucky thing that collagen gets grid-like? I'm sorry. That collagen becomes grid-like and transparent at the one place in the human body where it needs to be grid-like and transparent if eyes are to function and do what eyes are supposed to do. And Alexander Tsiaris uses words like magic and mystery and even divinity to characterize the simply incomprehensible ways in which the body 
comes into existence and then works. And he says, humbled before it all, not that I think he's a Christian, not that I think even that he is a theist, but humbled by it all, says our mathematical models cannot account for the complexities of human existence. They cannot. Folks, no matter where you go, there is the incomprehensible. And it is no less intellectually credible for me to say to you that there is a veil separating the seen from the unseen than it is intellectually credible for Alexander Tsiaris to look at the human body and acknowledge that he doesn't fully understand how it works and how it can come to the level of complexity that it evidences. Why not believe, as I said two weeks ago, sorry for the review, but we're camping at Easter. Why not assert that there is an infinite personal creator who stands behind it all and who himself accounts for the beauty and diversity and wonder of the creation, both seen and unseen? Why not have angels? So Mary gets a good dose of angels, doesn't she? Two of them. But they aren't enough, are they? They aren't enough. It's not enough to have the fact of the empty tomb. It's not enough to have supernatural beings announce that he is risen. Did you catch how Mary interacts with these angels? She, she is nonplussed. She, she is like, she doesn't care who they are. She doesn't care what they are. They are glorious. Luke tells us that their raiment was spectacular. Spectacular angels clad in the glories of heaven are not sufficient to take away her grief and heal her heart. There's only one thing big enough, sufficient enough to take away her grief. Jesus himself. You know when Mary's grief is taken away? Do you know when her tears are are dried? When her heart is healed? When the Jesus who had loved her in life, who had embraced her as a demon-possessed woman in bondage, to her demon possession. When Jesus spoke to her and embraced her and called her Mary. When are her tears dried? When is her heart healed? When is her grief assuaged? When Jesus speaks so tenderly with such compassion 
not rebuking her for her unbelief, but speaks simply and says, Mary. Do you think that kind of thing is still possible? Do you think it is still possible in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your tears, for Jesus, who is alive, who is risen, who knows people personally, exhaustively, Do you think it is still possible for Jesus to speak to you and say, Dennis, Paul, Mary, Donna, Mike, and for that voice to be the loudest and most powerful, and most compelling, and persuasive, and tender voice you will ever hear. We Presbyterian and Reformed people pride ourselves in knowing the truth. Do we know the voice? Do we know the voice? Does a hymn writer make any sense when she says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come. I had a conversation with another of our members this last week was at the Monday Thursday service. Called me two weeks ago to tell me of an experience that occurred at the Monday Thursday service. I've been really busy the last couple of weeks. Sent him a text. Said, I'm sorry I haven't called you. He said, it's okay. Good news keeps. Bad news doesn't. So when I finally got around to talking to him, he said, I came to the Monday, Thursday service in this condition, suffering with this particular spiritual affliction, feeling rejected, feeling alone, feeling exhausted, feeling beaten upon. And in the midst of the communion service, On Monday, Thursday, I heard Jesus say, I was rejected. I was beaten. I was alone. I understand. My friends, there is a voice on the other side of the veil real, powerful, strong, and the most deeply comforting voice 
you will ever hear. It is the voice of Jesus who is alive to speak to you. Do you know that? Of all of the things in your life that you seek, above every other thing, seek to hear that voice. Facts are not enough, nor are angels. Only the voice of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your voice has power and it can sound powerful. But your voice can sound sweet. And so comforting without all of the noise of its power, without its threat, without its fear. You know the people in this room and you know, dear Jesus, what each of us needs. Would you pierce the doubts, the darkness, the confusion, the fear, the grief, the loss, the tears, and speak as you spoke to our sister Mary, that we too might know peace. We ask in your name. Amen.